Hey, good morning again, everybody. Thanks so much for joining us. Those of you watching online, those of you at home church sites, and those of you here at the office, we are so glad you're tuning in. Uh, If you're watching this live at our 9 or 1030 service, you should know that I am currently in the mountains of North Carolina. I was one of eight people selected to do an adventure with a retired Navy SEAL named Chad Wright and a wilderness expert named Nathan Hicks. We're doing a 30-mile hike. We're learning how to camp and assess situations in uh, the mountains and wherever you would want to take an adventure. So I'm pretty excited about it. But knowing at my age and my level of camping experience, which is a big fat zero, there's a good chance I haven't survived. And so if for some reason I did not make it back, uh, Jeremy will be preaching next week. So Uh, Good luck with that, old friend. Dust off the commentaries, and may God be with you. But that being said, if you're a guest with us, we're actually in part two of a three-part series called One Hit Wonder, which I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, how can it be a one-hit wonder if it's three parts? Well, we're actually in a book of your Bible titled Jude, and it's just one chapter, hence the name. It's a one-hit wonder. Wonder, and it's wonderful because the brother of Jesus is actually who wrote it. And even 2,000 years after he penned this letter, it still holds vital implications for our lives today. So if you brought your Bible, you can meet me in Jude. It's towards the very back, the second to last book in your Bible. It's only one chapter, like I said, so I would encourage you to read it on your own at some point this week. Today, I want to focus on verses 10 and 11, although we'll set the stage in verses 3 and 4. We briefly touched on those last week. When you read this book for yourself, you're going to come across some weird stuff, specifically verses 5 through 9. Jude is going to start talking about uh, some angels and arguing with the devil and they're arguing over Moses's body and you're going to be like what in the world is this even talking about and Jude is going to quote some ancient books of antiquity we're not entirely sure why he does that apparently the group that he was writing to would have found that helpful but I wanted to point that out because I think the lesson for us in that is this pay attention to what is clear and speaks to your life, not, it, not what is unclear and speaks to your curiosity. I'll say that again, because anytime you read your Bible, you come across something obscure, obscure, you should pay attention to what is clear and speaks to your life, not what is unclear and speaks to your curiosity. Because here's the truth about the correspondents who wrote the Bible. They're writing to a specific group of people in a specific time period at a specific location for a specific purpose. They never thought to themselves, boy, when those folks in New Anthem read this, this is sure going to be confusing. Uh, They never realized that 
their words would be broadcast on the internet for all people to see for the rest of human history. No, they had in mind their own context. We see that in verse 3 when Jude writes, Hey, I wanted to talk to you all about one thing, but it's been brought to my attention that we need to talk about something else. And the point is, Jude and the rest of the Bible writers will all say some things that were intended for their audience. Now, in God's providential wisdom, and because God is the ultimate author of the Bible, even though these folks didn't realize they were writing to us, God did. Uh, God knew that we'd be reading it today, and He's trying to speak to our lives. And so what part of my job is is to help you figure out what God is trying to say to us now, not necessarily to try and satisfy your curiosity about what he was trying to speak to somebody else back then. So listen, I'm not saying don't be curious. I'm saying don't let that curiosity take you off course. Keep the main thing the main thing. But let's go. Jude 1 verse 3. Dear friends... I had been eagerly planning to write to you about the salvation we all share. But now I find that I must write about something else, urging you to defend the faith that God has delivered once for all time to His holy people. That was last week. I say this because some ungodly people have crept into your churches unnoticed, saying that God's marvelous grace allows us to live immoral lives. The condemnation of such people was recorded long ago, for they have denied our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Drop down to 10. But these people who have crept their way into churches unnoticed, they blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them! For they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the men that penned it in the time that they did, for the purpose that they did. But thank you for being the author and thank you for uh, understanding that we would be reading this 2,000 years later and knowing that it still has truth for our lives. God, we believe in your word. We believe when we open the Bible, you open your mouth. So please speak to us now. Speak to our hearts. Change our lives. Help us draw one step closer to your son, Jesus. Encourage us. Challenge us where we need it. Convict us if we need that, God. But most of all, please be glorified in the next few moments that we spend together dissecting your word and trying to become agents of change in this world, in this time that you have placed us. Strengthen us, encourage us, give us courage, God, as we leave this place in a few minutes. We love you, we praise you, in Jesus' name, amen. Instinct. It's a very interesting, albeit somewhat confusing, phenomenon. Uh, clearly a very old concept, as Jude just referenced it, but it's also gone through some hotly debated academic palaver. Today it is argued from a scientific perspective that every living creature has an instinct. 
just so we're on the same page moving forward, the most basic definition of instinct, I put it there in your notes, it is an unlearned, genetically determined behavior pattern that occurs in response to stimuli, or in my words, doing something without being taught. For example, scientists have shown that rats will jump when they hear the rattle of a rattlesnake. Even if they've never seen or heard a snake before, if they've been in a laboratory all their lives, they will jump at the sound of a rattle. Instinct. Honeybees will forage the moment that they are hatched from their comb. They will do a little dance to tell the other bees where to find food. It's an instinct. I can tell you as somebody who owns honeybees that the bees only live 21 days and they're all girls and those girls get after it the moment that they are hatched. But birds migrate as soon as they can fly. Dogs drool when presented with food. Fish just know how to swim without ever taking swim lessons. This is Important, particularly if you're looking for your son who went off the anemone and ended up in Australia in a dentist fish tank. Instinct. Now, it's also theorized that an animal's instinct serves two specific purposes, self-preservation and species continuation. Like, do what you do to stay alive, and let's pass that on genetically to the next generation, but let's also protect that generation so that we can keep the species alive. Uh, You've heard of a mother's instinct. This is species preservation. The reason I bring this to your attention and the reason it's important for you to understand instinct is because according to Jude, if you only operate out of your instinct, you will be, quote, destroyed. That's verse 10. Or to use the words of another author in Proverbs fourteen twelve, there's a way that seems right to a man that in the end leads to death. Which, to be fair, you already know that's true. Don't you? Because there was that one time you made the wrong decision, even though you were 100% certain that you were absolutely right, only to find out later that, man, I totally missed that one. Uh, Here's an example. Heard about this last week. In 1885, George Eastman invented rolled film. This was a big deal because it paved the way for the movie industry. And his company, Kodak, which you've heard of, was on the cutting edge of a new technology. Years later, in 1936, they invented 35 millimeter film. Again, revolutionized motion picture industry. They manufactured the chemicals to help develop this film that they'd created. But then in 1975, Kodak did something horrible. They invented the digital camera. Oh, you heard me right. In the 1970s, Kodak invented the technology to take digital pictures. And it was the exact thing that eventually put them out of business. See, they were certain 
their instincts were told them that this new technology would eat away their profits in the film industry and on film sales. So they worked diligently at suppressing digital technology, and it worked until the 1990s when some other folks refined the digital camera and Kodak's share dropped from $80 a share to $4 a share. So think about that. Kodak could have been the pioneer in digital photography. They had a 20-year head start but they were certain people wanted pictures when in reality people wanted memories. They didn't know what they actually had. In other words, you can be certain of something and you can be dreadfully wrong. So wrong that at no point in your incoherent ramblings were you ever even close to a rational thought and everyone who listened to you is now dumber. Billy Madison, anybody doesn't matter. Here's the thing. Your instinct, not always right. You shouldn't always trust them. Plus, not only are your instincts bad, but Jude is going to point out that there are some counterfeits that you need to be aware of. Counterfeits that look so real, if you trust your instinct, it's going to destroy you. What's verse 4 say? Ungodly people have crept in unnoticed. One translation says they've secretly wormed their way in among you, and they're undermining what God is trying to do. So in order to be in order to avoid being destroyed by our instinct, as Jude says is possible, here's the first thing that we need to chat about. You might want to jot this down. God's enemies usually come disguised as God's friends. God's enemies usually come disguised as God's friends. This is made clear for us when a guy named Paul confirms it in his letter to a church in Corinth. 2 Corinthians 11.14 reads, And no wonder, for Satan himself disguises himself as an angel of light. That is to say, God's enemies don't typically announce themselves on the front end. Which, to be clear, that is a good strategy. Like if I were to go to the car dealership to buy that 2019 Dodge Ram Warlock and Stanstone Tan that I want, and since I can't actually afford it, I decide to pay with it in cash and counterfeit bills. I'm not going to take in a whole bunch of monopoly money. Nobody is going to be confused when I hand them $40,000 worth of monopoly money and say, where are my keys? No, instead, what do I want to do? I want to get a counterfeit that looks as real as possible. To put this in perspective, my dad gave me some counterfeit bills, not because he's a counterfeiter, but because he works in law enforcement, and they use these to show people the difference between a real bill and a counterfeit bill. Um, But you can see that they are rather hard to distinguish. Let me get this close to the camera so that you can all see. $100 bill. $100 bill. When presented, both of these side by side, they look rather real. It's hard to tell the difference. 
If you were presented both of those bills in a cashier setting and you didn't have one of those marker things, they would be very hard to distinguish. So if God's enemies come disguised as God's friends, the question before us now is, okay, how do we recognize the difference? Because if we just trust our instinct, we've already established that can be bad. Even if we're completely 100% certain we're right, it can lead to our destruction. So again, how do we know if we're following God and his friends or if we're following one of God's enemies? Good news, Jude tells us. He first says the counterfeit or the false enemy will usually redefine morality and or Jesus. You need to be aware that God's enemies will usually redefine morality and or Jesus. The first half of verse 4 says, God's enemies claim that His marvelous grace allows us to live immoral lives. What's that? They're redefining morality. And the second half points out that they've denied our only master, Jesus, and so they're redefining Jesus. And that's why it's important for you to consistently do some self-reflection because when you start giving yourself permission to begin living however you want, when you start hearing people say what's most important is your feelings, and when you start reading your Bible and putting yourself into every story and it's about you and what you do and not about what Jesus has done, that is very dangerous. You can recognize these enemies of God when people start talking about, oh, you can live however you want. As long as you have peace about it. This is your truth. Live your truth. Discover your path. Uh, caution flags should start going up when you hear people not want to talk about Jesus as King or Lord or Master, but rather they start talking about Jesus as a good teacher. Oh, I appreciate his teachings. I like Jesus. I just don't like his church. Well, he kind of died for his church. And so that's not actually what he's asking you to do. Jesus asked you to come and die, to take up your cross and follow him, to believe he is who he said he was, which is God incarnate, the master of the universe. Remember how Jude started his book? I am a slave to King Jesus. This is a big deal because when you just view Jesus as a teacher, we can pick and choose what parts we like and what parts of the class we don't like. And if Christianity is just another way to God, then I can pilfer this from Islam and I can purloin this from Buddhism and I can take little parts here and little parts there and I should love myself and I should love whatever myself tells me to do and God knows the desires of my heart and God wants me happy and that's the irrationality of your instinct which is why Jude says your instinct can lead you to destruction to be fair, this was the first temptation that was ever brought before the human race, wasn't it? What's the serpent say to Adam and Eve when they're in the garden? Did God really say you can't eat from this tree? See, he's trying to redefine morality. He's trying to redefine 
God. No, God knows that you'll be like Him if you do that. He wants the the enemy, the devil, wants you to believe that, no, you're the master of your life. You get to decide your life. You're the master of your own domain. It's the lie many of us believe today. Because if there's no genders, and there's no right and wrong, and marriage is whatever you want it to be, and it's your money, and did God really say... Plus, think about this. In the garden, why wasn't Eve afraid of a talking serpent? You ever thought about that before? Was time just like a Disney musical back then? And so they were used to all animals talking? Maybe, but I believe it's because God's enemies come disguised as God's friends. And Eve thought she was talking to one of God's friends, which is why, again, we've got to recognize the counterfeits. The second way to do that, aside from understanding that that these enemies will redefine morality and redefine Jesus, the second way they'll do that is to understand the way of Cain. The counterfeit to God comes and encourages you to come to God in the way of Cain. That's verse 11. What's that mean? It means you will come to God on your own terms. That's what Cain did. He didn't want anybody telling him how to come to God. He would make that decision on his own. It was his choice. And all the way back in the Old Testament, thousands and thousands of years ago, there were two brothers. Cain was a farmer and Abel was a shepherd. And the way they understood God and the way they worshipped God was through sacrifice. So Abel would bring the best sheep from his flock and the best goat from his herd and offer it to God as thanks for everything that God has provided. He was giving God his first and his best. Whereas Cain, on the other hand, would bring the jacked up fruit and the marred up vegetables because a brother's got to eat. You know what I'm talking about? And how quick are we to bring God our leftovers, but we save the best for ourselves? Think about something. If your favorite author or your favorite athlete were coming over for dinner, if you had some kind of distinguished guest over for supper, how many of you are serving leftovers? Like, what is this? Oh, those are hot dogs from last night. They're fine. Uh, That's what my wife always tells me. They're fine. It's fine. I'm like, babe, the the casing's all wrinkled up. It's like they were in the bathtub too long. The meat doesn't even fit in here anymore. Oh, it's fine. uh, These buns moldy? It's fine. It boosts your immune system. That's what she tells me. But no, none of us would do that to our friends or distinguished guests, but that's exactly what Cain was doing to God, and that's exactly what many of us do as well. We don't bring God our first. We don't bring God our best, because he'll understand. He's God. He knows we need this in our lives. And Cain became jealous because God began blessing Abel, and Cain killed him. We say, well, I would never kill anybody. I hope not. That's not the point. The point is we don't get to choose how to come to God. People say sincerity is all you need. Nope. Salvation is all you need. To be saved from God's judgment is what you need. If sincerity is all you needed, Jesus would not have had to come to die. That's an enemy characteristic. To come to God in the way of Cain. You get to choose. 
The third way that you can recognize an enemy of God and be aware of these counterfeits is that you need to be aware of Balaam's error. The counterfeit to God follows Balaam's error. What was that? It's using God for my own gain. It's using God as a genie for health and wealth and happiness. And God, if you do this for me, I'll do this for you. Some of you might remember a couple years ago, I did a sermon series called Stranger Things. We looked at some strange stories in the Old Testament. And one of those messages was all about Balaam and his talking donkey. You can go watch it online if you're interested. But here's all you really need to know. Balaam was a prophet of God. But instead of following God, instead of being the mouthpiece that a prophet was... He began chasing profit, as in dollars and cash. And it's a trap many Christian leaders fall into. It's why Paul writes to a pastor named Timothy in 1 Timothy 6 to teach these things, Timothy, and encourage everyone to obey them. Some people may contradict our teaching, but these are the wholesome teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ. These teachings promote a godly life. Anyone who teaches something different is arrogant and lacks understanding. Such a person has an unhealthy desire to quibble over the meaning of words. This stirs up arguments, ending in jealousy, division, slander, and evil suspicions. These people always cause trouble. Their minds are corrupt. And they have turned their backs on the truth. To them, a show of godliness is just a way to become, say it with me, all of our locations, just a way to become wealthy. Wealthy. It's the way of Balaam. It's an error. To summarize that entire text, if the point of your life is cash, then you've become corrupt. And every charlatan who says otherwise, and every charlatan who promises you wealth when you give has a horrifying end coming their way. These false teachers who try to promise blessing when you give, how how come they aren't given? If God promises a thousandfold, how come they're not the first one to write the check? Listen to me. Jesus died poor. His disciples died poor. Just for the record, they died horrible deaths in addition to being broke as a joke. Matter of fact, in many cases, what they said challenged the religious establishment source of income so much, that's what got them killed. It it wasn't so much that they didn't believe Jesus was the Messiah. It was that they knew that Jesus being the Messiah took away their source of income and their power and their influence. Because when Jesus is king, you see, and I hope you understand most of America's definition of Christianity isn't the Christianity that Jesus died for. It's not about money. It's about him being the master. So examine your heart. If you're falling in love with the things of this world, if you start caring about them more than you care about following Jesus, you're on a slippery slope. It's Balaam's error. It ends bad. It's a counterfeit to the gospel. Number four, Korah's rebellion. 
the counterfeit false prey to Korah's rebellion. Korah, if you didn't know, was part of a large group of people, slaves, who were rescued out of Egypt by Moses. Korah subsequently gets frustrated that he's not the one in charge, and he begins to usurp and challenge Moses' authority. He rejects the authority that God gave Moses and says, why about me? Why we got to follow you? What makes you so special? Which that's the instinctual trap that we can all fall prey to. Rejecting God's chosen leaders and the authority that he has given them over our lives. You can read about Korah's story in Numbers 16 if you want. But the point is simply that we all question the concept of submission to authority. Again, this goes way back to Genesis. Did God really say? Well, yeah, because he's the authority over everything. It's why we can all not feel guilty about dishonoring our teacher, dishonoring our boss, dishonoring our parents, dishonoring our spouse, dishonoring our pastors, dishonoring our elected officials and the president and the police. And if you can treat them poorly and have no second thought about that, it's Korah's rebellion. It's rather popular nowadays to say, oh, I'll listen so long as I agree. Yet that's not what God has asked us. God says we should submit as long as it's not sin. However, most people look for reasons not to follow, and you're going to find exactly what you're looking for. So I can't come to that church because nobody was there for me. And you can point to all the examples of that because you'll find what you're looking for. And the pastor isn't approachable, and that teacher doesn't know as much as me, and my parents aren't as smart as me, and my spouse doesn't ever do anything for me. And again, it's all a counterfeit to God. It's Korah's rebellion. Watch this, Romans 13.1. Let everyone submit to the governing authorities, since there is no authority except from God. And the authorities that exist are instituted by God. And so if you're having trouble with that, maybe you should think of it like this. Honor the position if you can't honor the person. God developed the position, and so you should honor it if you can't honor the person. When it comes to church things, Hebrews thirteen seventeen says, Have confidence in your church leaders and submit to their authority because they keep watch over you as those who must give an account. Do this so that their work will be a joy, not a burden, for that would be of no benefit to you. I have to give an account for how I lead this place. And that's a horrifying concept, which is why you should try and follow me as I follow Christ. Not because there's anything special about me, but it's because God has designed the church to work in that way. So what do we know? We know there are counterfeits to God. We know these counterfeits are enemies of God, but they come disguised as his friends, which is why if we trust our instincts, we are in trouble. But we know now how to recognize these bogus enemies of God. Yet what we don't know is if somebody is caught up in this trap and held hostage by one of these enemies of God, like if one of our loved ones is following the way of Cain or in Korah's rebellion or in Balaam's error, what do we do then? Thankfully, 
all is not lost. There is still hope. Jude once again comes through in the clutch. Check this out. Verse 22. And you must show mercy to those whose faith is wavering. It's not a sin to have your faith waver. But we're going to show mercy to those who do that. Rescue others by snatching them from the flames of judgment. Show mercy to still others, but do so with great caution, hating the sins that contaminate their lives. I'll write these three things down real fast, and then we'll be done. To those who doubt, be merciful. That's verse 22. To those who doubt, be merciful. Merciful. How did Jesus handle the disciple Thomas when Thomas said, I'm not going to believe until I see the scars in his hands? And he was doubting Thomas. What's Jesus do? He comes alongside him. He grants to him mercy. He shows him the scars. Look here, Thomas. Maybe God has put somebody in your life so that you can help them move from wavering faith into unwavering trust in God. How do you do that? You have to show them mercy. You don't have to be magnificent. You just have to be compassionate and empathetic and nice. You once too were lost. Aren't you glad people were patient with you? To those with a wavering faith, we show mercy. To those who are trapped in sin, we need to help them. Jude says, snatch them out of the fire. Help them out of danger. How do you do that? You share the gospel. You remind them that God's not trying to keep anything from them. The laws and rules that God has instituted was for our flourishing. They were not to keep us down. They were to bring us up. They are to give us life. This is why I'm so passionate about you getting involved at church. Not because I need something from you, but because I want something for you. God says when you help people, you too will then flourish. I want you to experience the joy of snatching somebody out of the fire. This is what we do together. Furthermore, I think the church is the best context for us to do that because Jude says in verse 23 that we have to use caution if we're out on our own and somebody is in outright rebellion. That's what he writes. So to those in outright rebellion, mix mercy with fear. Mix mercy with fear. It's the old phrase, love the sinner, hate the sin. See, many of you are staying in that relationship because you think that you can change them. No, God is who changes them. And, and it's why we need each other because if we're not careful, we can be caught up in their sin and end up in this wavering faith thing and then becomes a vicious cycle. You can love them from afar. You can bring people in. We need to mix caution with our uh, mercy. And we need to mix fear with our mercy. Uh, Many times you're just enabling people and not actually helping them. It's why you can't trust your instinct. And it's why you need to realize that there are enemies in this world. They're disguised as God's friends. And so we need to do everything we can to recognize how these enemies of God operate so that we can continue to change the world around us. God, to that end, help us.
Help us recognize where we need to have mercy, where we can be a blessing, where we need to mix caution with fear. God, uh, help us understand where we need to just be merciful and nice and empathetic. God, we know that you created the world to work in such a way that we are to be involved in other people's lives. But God, we also know that there are enemies to you and your word and your gospel and your son Jesus. And we know that that you've told us how we need to come to you through your son Jesus because he died for our sin, that there's nothing we can do, but, but rather he did it all. And that when we trust in him, now he is our mediator between us and you. And so we're thankful for that, God. We're thankful that that we have a way to come to you. We recognize that there are people in this world who are trying to challenge morality and challenge your son Jesus and try and make money be the ultimate thing, God. And and I'm just asking you now to do what only you can do and help us self-reflect on if we've followed any of these errors, if if we've been following an enemy of yours instead of trusting you and who you are. God, help this church, New Anthem, to always be a place that's following after you and chasing after you and and showing people mercy and grace. Help us just impact the world in such a powerful way that it brings your name glory and it brings joy to those who are serving you. God, we love you. We praise you. Again, help lead us to the place where we find fullness of life. We ask all of this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen.